Hey, thanks for being here today. I'm Pastor Dave. Uh, if you came expecting Steve, Steve's in St. Albans. I like for people to see him there uh, every now and then, and I like to be here every now and then. So uh, he'll be back next week, and uh, I'll be back in St. Albans next week, <clears throat> I think. So thanks for being here today. Thanks for being here in person. I know it takes a lot today to uh, make a decision to, to be out, but we appreciate you being here. It's an encouragement to to your church, to your staff, uh, leaders, all that. So thank you for that. We can be safe and, and, um, and we can worship. Today's uh, the day of worship. Uh, we've been in our series now for this, our fourth week, 10 Greatest Challenges. These are challenges that come from the Ten Commandments. You remember the Ten Commandments? Some people kind of have forgotten those because... As modern-day Christians, sometimes we mistakenly believe that the Ten Commandments are just for the Jewish people, that they're for people who live in the Old Testament dispensation. But remember, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. So these commandments really are applicable not just to us, but if you know the history of our nation, if you've studied the, the nation's history, you realize that most of the people who wrote the early documents that made the early laws that uh, filled the positions of leadership were Christian people. And they based the law of the land on the Ten Commandments. That's why they're posted outside the Supreme Court. That's why they're debated by people who hate God, who don't like Christianity, who don't like these principles or these values. We talked about that kind of in the first uh, study the first message that these values are hotly debated today and it seems more and more that there's a growing uh, voice a growing number of people who hate God who want to take God out who don't want God's word or God's name to be mentioned in any way but I want to tell you so much of our society and our culture even when you're not expecting it from the Bible so much of it is based on God's word <clears throat> God knew us better than uh, than anybody else. And when he made these commandments, he was establishing a framework for our relationship with him. He said, look, you've come out of Egypt. 400 years you were there. You experienced a lot. You saw a lot. You were exposed to a lot of junk, a lot of garbage, a lot of religious, spiritual garbage. We're going to start over. We're going to start a new relationship. We're going to lay the groundwork. And here's the groundwork. It's these Ten Commandments. And these Ten Commandments represent issues that you and I still face today because we're human. He's the same God. We're human. So these are the Ten Greatest Challenges. I think there are Ten Greatest Challenges in our life. So Exodus 20 is where we find them. It's that moment when God revealed His character and His values and His nature to establish His framework. First four of these represent our vertical relationship to God. The next six, starting next week, we're going to talk about our horizontal relationship, horizontal relationship to people. So let's jump right in. <clears throat> Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. This commandment comes with a challenge. Our challenge is with God really here. It's, a, it's God saying, look, let's get first things first. Let's... Let's get the groundwork laid. Here's the first thing. I am who I am. We have to let God be God. We can't make him into a designer God. We can't, we can't 
come up with our own beliefs and then say, well, he's on, he, he, this is what our God believes. You know, in ancient times, they had a God for the God they forgot about. The God, the unknown God. Remember that God on Mars Hill? They had this statue to a God just in case they missed any gods. God said, that's not me. I am who I am. And this is how the relationship's got to go. You're not marrying me because of what you want me to be. You're marrying me because of who I am. Who I am. So, that's the first one. Then he says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Even if you don't make it. He said, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Somebody else brings one in. Don't make them, don't bow down. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. This is a, this is a challenge with worship. <clears throat> it is our allegiance. God's going to be God. Now he's, he's got to know, look, I, I'm first in your life. We just sang a song that said something about God making his throne our heart, or our heart, his throne. Some people have a view that the throne of your life is a bench, or it's a couch. And there's room for lots of people, and lots of things. But it's a single occupancy seat. It's only room for one, and it's God. God says, worship only me. Now when I was forming up these challenges, I started to put worship God alone. And that makes sense, but then I thought, in the, you know, at B.C. that would have been fine before COVID. But now it's like, okay, they don't want me to come back to church. Uh, I need to worship God alone. So worship only God. Worship only God. Is it, now our third one we talked about last week. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who, who misuses his name. You remember we talked about people using God's name as profanity, saying, oh my God, or good God. Well, we've really dropped the ball and lowered our standards on this, even as Christian people over the last 30 or 40 years. You know, that used to be called out, but now it's just commonplace even among Christian people. And we need to stop it. We need to stop not only using his name or the name of Jesus as profanity, we need to stop calling down God on our side. You know what I'm saying? Everybody thinks God's on their side. That's the propagandizing. God's on our side. You know, whatever our side is, that, that's God. You know, he can't be on everybody's side, can he? He can't be on everybody's side. The question is really not whose side is God on. The question is, are you on God's side? Are you on God's side? So this is, a, this is really a, a challenge with religion, because that's what religions do. They think up things. I'm thinking Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, even some brands of Christianity. Think up things and then say, okay, uh, this is what God wants us to do. And we have to represent God accurately. How would you like it if someone was going around killing people in your name? If they were doing dastardly things in your name, how would you like that? You wouldn't like it. Uh, if you're a husband, my wife said I should do this to you. No, no, that's misusing the name of God. So now we're on to our fourth one. That's today. It's the last one of the vertical relationship with God. This is the longest commandment. There's 99 words in English. I challenge you to count them as I'm reading them. There's 99 words. It's the longest one as opposed to four words. Some of them are four words. Thou shalt not murder. Uh, this is 99 words. It's the longest one. 
Yet this is the one that a lot of Christian people say, eh, this is the only one that doesn't apply to us. Why would God give us the Ten Commandments and say, obey all of these except for this one? I've heard Christian people say that, that this one doesn't apply to us. If the other nine apply to us, this one applies to us. That's what I want to show you today. And it's the longest one. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, <clears throat> but the seventh, that's what Sabbath means. The word Sabbath means seventh. Seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals. Even the animals get a break. Nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. <clears throat> now this is a challenge, I believe, with time. You know, God lives outside the bounds of time. God can enter time at any place on the spectrum. But he gave us time to live within. You and I live in the confines of time. Unless you have a time machine at your house. Tim, do you have a time machine at your house? You do. Okay. Well, would you travel about 50 days or ahead and let me know what's going to happen? So, unless you have a time machine, we are con you know, we're bound by, like Tim, we're bound by time. <clears throat> what do you do with your time? How do you spend your time? Uh, yeah, this is a big challenge for us. We don't want to be idle. We, you know, we don't, we don't want to go into workaholism, which our culture is kind of prone to do. At least B.C. it was. When I think of this challenge with time, I think of a moment B.C., before COVID. I think of the one-trip salad bar. How many of you remember the one-trip salad bar where you go help yourself? Well, the, you know, or, 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 you know, you could go get all-you-could-eat salad bar, too. But sometimes you didn't want all-you-could-eat because you wanted to order a steak or some meal. But you could go to the one-trip salad bar. I'm thinking specifically that restaurant on this side, what used to sit on this side of the Coliseum. Coliseum, the, uh, the um, yeah, the Charleston Coliseum. What was the name of that restaurant? Fifth Quarter. What, what a great salad bar. You remember their salad bar? It was awesome, wasn't it? But to my knowledge, you, you couldn't go endless unless you paid for that, but you could get the salad bar one trip and you could get a steak. And they had some great steaks. Remember the Charleston steak? Oh, so good. And so, so you had to learn to master the salad accumulation on your plate. You, you with me? One trip. You just get one trip. And here's the problem that, that you get up to go to that one trip salad bar and your wife says, hey, get me some of those. And you're like, wait a minute, I only get one trip here. <laughs> so you learn, you learn how to stack it. So listen and learn. If you, if you take some cottage cheese and do a row of cottage cheese around the plate and then you take the crackers and make a fence around with the cottage cheese you have your sideboards, as the old-timers used to call it. You know, hey, that plate looks like it needs some sideboards. That's what they used to say. You know, so you, you, and so, hey, this is one trip. I'm, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Now, you're not going to shame me on this. And then you start stacking the stuff that you need. You get what you want. You get what your kid wants. You get what your wife wants. And then, you know, you got a significant one-trip salad bar plate. 
And people used to marvel, you know, what, what I could do on, on that. But, but here's the problem. The problem is there's a lot of activity there and you know you've got to walk back to your table. You've got to get back to your table without the Tommy tomato rolling off or, you know, cucumber or something like that. You've got to get back to your table and you realize it's stacked on there so much that you're only one step away from disaster. When I think of our challenge with time, I think about that overfilled plate and how much we just keep stacking stuff on there. You know, there's our job, then there's the school, and now there's, uh, we got a job, but now we got to do school again, right, parents? <laughs> We're doing school again. I hate geometry, and uh, it seems like Jameson has geometry every semester, and so uh, you, we keep stacking it. We got what the kids are doing and what all their activities. And so we just keep stacking it on there until we have an overfilled plate. And we're asking ourselves, wow, what can, what can I leave undone? What, what, what are my priorities? What can I nudge out Sunday? Or can I take an extra Saturday? Or can I skip work? Or what can I do in order to do everything I have on my plate to do? And this is kind of our life. Now, the last six months, or not quite that long, we've kind of been forced into, we've been forced into, you know, kind of examining these things, working from home or whatever it is. But I'm not sure the workload went down. And I believe now that school is back in, the workload for parents just went up. And for many families, uh, you know, the, this, this workload, this overfilled plate, creates a frazzled family and a strain on a marriage. And it's really, it's really not easy. You know, I remember several years ago, I read something that said, by the year 2020, now this is several years ago, this might have been back in the 90s, I read, by the year 2020, the United States of America will have so much technology and innovation in the workplace that the average American citizen will have so much free time on his hands, he won't know what to do with it. Boy, were they wrong. Were they wrong. So the challenge here, and I kind of struggled with what to make the challenge. The challenge is to rest in God's work. I started to say to work in God's rest, because that's what we're doing. But we got to get to the rest. We got to get to the rest. And that's, what, that's where we're going. We're going to spend most of our time working. We got to get to the rest. You think this commandment doesn't apply to us today? You need to think again. This commandment may apply to us more so than it did to the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, because of our busy, busy, mobile lives. So when you hear the Sabbath day, you might think, oh, that's a day when you, you know, the Jewish people couldn't do anything. And some people say, well, that's what Sunday is today. But remember, Sabbath means seventh. So Sunday can't be the Sabbath day. Sunday can't be the Sabbath day. I'll talk about in a little bit Sunday versus Saturday. But I want you to see that this commandment represents two things. It represents two things. It represents the dignity of work and the blessing of rest. The dignity of work and the blessing of rest. Let's talk about the dignity of work. We just had Labor Day. Labor Day is a holiday in the United States of America when we, we celebrate the common man, the worker man, the man who made it happen. 
You know, the, the, and when I say man, ladies, I apologize. I mean human, human. Uh, you know, the, the, the people who are out there doing it. And that's, that's what this day uh, recognizes. And I hope we never lose this day. Because, you know, in the first service, we had some from the greatest generation. And maybe we do now today. But they're the people who built the bridges, built the roads, built the, the buildings and the infrastructure of our country. What our culture is trying to do now is to repair all those things because they've been around for so long. But the Labor Day celebrates that. And, and, and God gives dignity to work. He gives dignity to work. The Apostle Paul said in one place, not on the screen here, in 2 Thessalonians 3, he said, if you don't work, you remember what he said? You don't what? You don't eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. But working is more, is done for more than just eating. By work... We emulate, we copy, we live in the image and character of God. That's what this commandment is saying. God worked. For six days he worked. He worked. And so we copy God like father, like son. And, and, and what God did was God created. Now we also, because we're made in the image of God and the character of God, we have the opportunity to create. Now, we don't create ex nihilo out of nothing. We create with something. Maybe you create uh, a building. You might get up every morning and grab your hammer, grab your tool bag, and go to the work site, and you, uh, you're, you're building something. Uh, you, you're creating a space. Maybe you work in the home. Maybe you're a homemaker. We still have that term. Is that is an accept, acceptable term today? A homemaker. can be a man or a woman, and they're creating an environment where kids and a family can uh, grow up and live. You, you know, it, it, whatever you do, whatever you do, uh, you need to look at it as done in the image or character of God. You might go to a laptop computer and create a plan, a diagram, a flow chart, or a document or something. And, or you could be the person that takes that diagram and you, you make something with it. You know, there's people who make it and there's people who, who uh, come up with the idea for it. And it's interesting that God is portrayed in the Bible as both a, uh, a common worker and an executive. You know, my last deployment for the army was with the 2nd and the 19th. 2nd and the 19th, uh, special Forces Unit, they are what you call airborne. They're airborne. How many of you know what airborne means? These are guys that do what? They jump out of perfectly good airplanes. I never got to do that. I was a little bit too old. You know, if you're past 40, uh, you know, they, don't, they won't send you to airborne school unless you're, you know, unless they think you're going to be around a long time. And so I didn't get to go to airborne school, but I got to watch them do it. And so they're airborne. And the airborne guys... They have a name for everybody else in the military. You know what they're called? Chairborn. <laughs> so you have the airborne and you have the chairborn. Now you would think that the airborne guys would kind of look down on the chairborn, but they do. They do. They don't really, but sometimes they do until, until they have a problem with their pay. Guess who they're going to see? They're going to see the chairborn guy. I said, hey, you know, I've got a problem with my pay. Or one of their many awards on their chest. Then they go to the chairborn guy, and the chairborn gets it done for them. And they realize, you know, we need both. And, and so we have manual laborers, but we also have executives, pen pushers. God is represented 
by both in the, in the Bible. In Psalm 102, verse 25, the Bible says, In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So this is a portrayal of God doing something with his hands. And we know that when God made Adam, what did he use to make Adam? Dirt. He used dirt. He made Adam with dirt. He got his hands dirty. God is also known in the Bible as to have spoken the word and the worlds came into being. So God is represented as both a manual labor and an executive labor. And if, you know, if we could get this right in our culture, there would be no real reason for, uh, for unions and labor laws to treat people the right way, the way they should be treated. There, would be, there wouldn't be this tension because everybody would understand that you, what you're doing with your hands is in the image of God, and what you're doing with your brain or with your pen is in the image of God. It would take care of a lot of problems, but we have, since the fall of man, abused the work, and we've, we've spoiled it, and we've made it something that it's not. So, uh, you know, God gives us this beautiful picture. He dignifies our work in the Bible by being represented as both. And that's what this commandment is reminding us, that God loves hard workers. God loves hard workers. You know, this is, this is a commandment we could use for the moocher, for the guy who wants to lay around, for the guy who wants to just watch TV all day. Look, you need to get a job. Young people need to get a job. They need to do something. They need to do something to live out their God-given purpose for existence. When God put Adam in the garden, he gave Adam some responsibility. But what he didn't give Adam was a paycheck. So God gives us, right here, not only does he identify with both kinds of workers, all kinds of workers, he gives us a motivation for our work. He said, Adam, I want you to work the garden. Adam didn't say, well, how much are you going to pay me? You know, well, how much do I get? Oftentimes, when people go to a job interview today, people look for a job, and they look for a degree field. They want to go into something. What do they look for? What's the first thing they check out? How much does this guy get paid? How much does this person get? <clears throat> now, I love getting paid. Can I get an amen on getting paid? Amen. We love getting paid. Well, you know what's better than getting paid? Getting paid for something that God gave you to do. That's what's better. If you're doing something God gave you to do, and they pay you for it, that's the ice cream and the cake. That's what you're, that's what you're shooting for here. So tell your kids, hey, don't just go after something because that's what pays the most. You don't want to have to drag yourself out of bed every Monday. You want to get up and do what God has given you to do so that, uh, you know, you can fulfill that purpose. One day you'll stop getting paid. I know it's hard for you to believe. You know, something I'm thinking about now that some of you have already thought about. You know, one, no time's very soon, but I'm starting to think about retirement. So there'll be a day when we retire, all of us, we retire, and so what are we going to do then? If our work is only for pay, what are we going to do when people stop paying us? Well, then we, that's when we have to pay ourselves, don't we? But 
We need to keep doing what God has given us to do. And the people who are happiest, most happy in retirement are the people who are still doing something, who still feel like they need to do something, that God has given them something to do. The Bible says we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God what? God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a job for you. He has a job for you. You just need to do that. Your job might be looking for a job. Yeah, you know, there are people right now looking for a job. Do you know you can look for a job and give God the glory while you're doing it? You can look for a job in the image and character of God. If you're a caregiver, caregiving doesn't pay a lot. You know, I think about our Jesus prom that Steve leads us in every year. Uh, you know, we couldn't do it this year. B.C., B.C. And, uh, and those are caregivers. And you know why they love that time so much? Because for a little while, they get a break. And somebody else comes in and cares for them. And they, they, I don't see any of them getting rich. You're not going to get rich caring for somebody else. But you know what you are going to do? You're going to be living in the character and image of God. Because who cares the most about people? God does. God does. Or maybe you're a homemaker. Again, homemaking doesn't pay a lot, but it pays a lot in ways that you cannot quantify when you create that space. So what's our motivation? Paul said, again, he wrote this verse, but he said in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, and that's what you've got to figure out, and our kids, work at it half-heartedly. Uh-uh, that's right. With all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Your motivation is to do what God has given you to do. In fact, in our group questions this week, one of the questions is, how does your job reflect the image of God? And if you, you know, you may need some help. You might say, here's what I do. How does this reflect the image and character of God? If you need help, get some help with your group or somebody, if, if your work does not express the image or character of God, it's probably illegal or immoral, and you got to stop it. you got to stop doing it, all right? Just, uh, I don't know if anybody's out there dancing, you know, where they shouldn't be or doing stuff like that, but you should stop, okay? If it's not reflecting the image of God. Okay, not, not only the motivation, there's so much in this commandment that I don't have time for all of it. Not only does God give us a motivation for work, but he gives us a method for work. Every, every week on uh, either Sunday or Monday, I make a to-do list. It's, my brain has to have one. You know, I have to keep things in front of me. Does anybody else like that? Make, anybody make to-do lists? <clears throat> I make to-do lists. I have to-do lists from 20-some years ago. I don't know why I keep them. It gives me some satisfaction, but I'm going to throw them away one day. But, but I don't keep them anymore. I used to keep them, but now I just make them on a sticky note. Yeah, that's what it's down to. It's down to a sticky note, you know, right and small. And then I, I put the date on it, and I tape it. You know, it won't stick all week. I tape it to my laptop. And then I, when I get through, I check things off. And then when I'm done, when I work on it, I put a check mark if I work on that. But when I'm through with it, I, I scratch it off. It just doing that in front of you gives me satisfaction. Are you with me? Is anybody else like this? When I do this, uh, yeah, uh, when I do this during the week, I get such satisfaction from crossing that off. 
Here's the silly thing about me. If I, if I don't get back to my computer since Thursday or you know, Friday, sometimes I'm out doing stuff. If I don't get back to my computer and Monday I go to put my new to-do list on and that old to-do list is there, you know what I'll do before I throw it away? If I did something, I'll scratch it off. Like, how stupid is that? I did it, you know, two, two, three days ago just to have the satisfaction of completed work. I scratch it off, then I wad it up and throw it in the trash. And I make a new list. And there's been something on my to-do list for over a year. And it's the first thing on my list. It's not the first thing because it's the most important thing. It's the first thing because I need to do it. It's been on my list for over a year over a year, and I still haven't done it, but it's on my list. Why do I torture myself like that? I go to bed at night thinking about that thing that I have to do. It's torture, but I have to do it. I know I have to do it, so I keep it on the list, and I cross it off. And you know what? God made us this way. God, the Bible says, in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Six days. Now, why did God do that? I, you know, I don't know what your theology is. It doesn't really matter. It's not an essential. To me, it's not an essential. Whether you believe that the days of creation were 24-hour literal days, or if they were periods of time, there's good arguments on both sides, biblically. It doesn't matter. But why did God take any, any time to do this? Why didn't he just do it all in an instant? God could have done it in an instant. Is that, you agree with me? How many of you believe God could have created everything in an instant? He could have done it in an instant. Okay, if you don't agree with me, then you got trouble with, with the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And after that, everything else we believe could happen based on that verse. God could have done this in an instant. Why did he take six days to do it? I think because God was giving us a pattern. He was giving us a method. He was taking satisfaction. When you read the book of, uh, when you read the book of Genesis, that first chapter, you don't see God saying, oh, well, I got the sun, the moon, and the stars down, but those pesky fish and lizards I still got to do, and I haven't even started on the man yet. No, God doesn't do that. At the end of each day, what, is, what does it say? And God saw that all that he had made was what? Good. In the evening, in the morning, were the third day. By the way, there's no evening and morning on the seventh day, which is why some people believe that it could have been a longer period of time. Some people think we're still in the seventh day. That's not really applicable here, but God took some time and he did what he had to do that day. He took a deep breath. He enjoyed it. It was good. And then the next day he did his work for that day. You, you, can, uh, you can read... Um, you know, all the books on business and how to manage your time and prioritize your time. But it's right here in the Bible. It's right here in the Bible. God says, break your work into chunks. Break it into different days and then weeks. What can I get done in a month? What should I do in a quarter? Then there's a season. And then there's a half a year. Then there's a year. And if you study the Old Testament and you study, and this is not easy to do, I'll, I'll grant you that. But if you study the festival calendar, the feasts, the times of celebration, you'll see that God strategically places in the calendar of the Old Testament people these feasts, these times of rest, these times of work. And these times of rest. God does this. He does it on purpose. So that we too can learn that we don't have to work 24-7. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the Egyptians 
gave the Hebrews a day off. How many of you think the slaves, the Hebrew slaves, got a day off? You think the Egyptians said, hey, that's enough work on that, uh, on that pyramid over there. It's only half built. Take the day off. Go, uh, go to the lake today. You think they did that? No, they didn't do that. They, they, were sl- they were slaves. The Egyptians drove them until they dropped, and then they put them over in the heap over here of the dead bodies. They didn't care about these people. God said, look, we're not going to be like the Egyptians. We're out of Egypt now. We're going to do this differently. You're going to take a break. You're going you're to be satisfied with your work. When the sun goes down, stop. You, you know, we in America, we're, we, we kind of abuse the work week. We, we, we will do whatever we want to do until we get it done. But God says, take a break. This is what comes out of the Bible. And so we shouldn't lose sleep or joy over what we haven't done so much that we can't enjoy what we have done. Therefore, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. My grandfather always used to say, why do today what you can do tomorrow? My grandmother made her so mad. But that was his mentality. Why do today what you can do tomorrow? He understood that, you know, there'll be stuff left here when I'm gone. And, and, and if we can get by without doing it today, let's don't do it today. Let's do it tomorrow. And if tomorrow never comes, guess what? We didn't need to do it today. We didn't need to do it. It's a great mentality. I, I don't suggest you use that on your, the wife's list that she has for you to do. But, um, but you can try it. I only got a couple minutes left. So let's talk about the blessing of of rest. <clears throat> it, we spent most of our time here because this is most of our time, work. But you know, we work to rest. We don't rest to work. According to the Bible, we work so that we can get, it's like working for the weekend. We work to rest. And here's what God said. <clears throat> and the Bible says, in six days, but he rested on the seventh and made it holy. Now this word rest simply means the, uh, the enjoyment or the satisfaction of completed work. That's what it means. That's rest. It's when you can say, ah, I got that done. But today, uh, you know, if it weren't going to rain, I might be in my hammock later. I'd be like, ah, you know, another Sunday in the books. Feels good. Tomorrow we'll start it. We live in a culture that allows us a five-day work week. A five-day work week. And the word holy simply means different. It means different. Set apart. Something out of the ordinary. Above the ordinary. So how do you make the seventh day a day of rest? How do you make it holy? That depends on what you do on the other days of your life. Whatever you do on the other days, don't do on the Sabbath day. Don't do on that day. Take a break. If you can, take a rest. Unfortunately, we live in the age of grace and not legalism. So nobody's going to hold your feet to the fire on this. But that's, this is what God is trying to build into us. This rhythm of work and rest and work and rest. And everybody in our circle should enjoy this. Son and daughter, he said. Uh, your workers, your servants, uh, and, and your animals. Even their animals get a break, the people were saying. 
The Egyptian people were looking at them. How can they get everything done? How can they be so productive? How, how can they be so effective in such a great society? How come everybody wants to, to be there? It's because they're going on the pattern that God established. They work, and they work hard, but then they rest. And then they rest. And that's the pattern we need to use. You may be burnt out. You may be working too much. Uh, you love your work, that's good. If you want to keep loving your work, don't burn out. You can burn out doing the stuff you love to do if you don't rest. I know, I know this doesn't seem important to you because you may not be there, but let me tell you, you can burn out doing the stuff you love to do if you don't implement these periods of rest. That's what God was trying to say. He said, look, we're in a relationship here. I want you for the long term. Uh, honey, I want you to stay healthy. Let's go take a walk. Let's take a nap. Let's go out on the lake. Let's go swim. Let, let's go ride the bike. Let, let's do something. Let's go have some fun with the kids. Let's do something. I want to keep you here for a long time. It's a long-term relationship. And if you're always working, then you're, you're going to wear yourself down prematurely. And we don't want anybody to do that. And God said, I don't want to do that. I don't want you working for me so much that you're like, oh, this God, he's a slave driver. He never... No, God says, enjoy your Saturday. I can with pride stand up and say, take a nap today. Even though today is the first day of the week. You know, Saturday's still the Sabbath day. It's still the Sabbath day. We don't have to argue about that because it's the seventh day. Now, we're under grace and not law. But on Saturday, you ought to do something different than what you did Monday through Friday. To the early Christians, Sunday was a work day. The Romans didn't say, oh, it's your day of worship? Okay, you go ahead and take the day off. They didn't do that. They were like the Egyptians. They worked every day. So you know when the Sunday, Sunday's the Lord's day. That's why we worship on the Lord's day. Because that's the day Jesus came out of the grave. And that's the day the Christians started to gather on the Lord's day. And Christians, when did they meet then? They either met very early, like they were going to the tomb, or they met very late. Acts chapter 20, verse 9, the Bible says, Eutychus was listening to Paul preach, and he fell out a window because Paul was preaching long. And you're like, I'm glad I'm not sitting in a window right now. We're about done. We're about done. Sunday's the Lord's Day. This is when Christians worship. We can still observe the Sabbath. We can still observe the Sabbath. By doing something different. But Sunday's the Lord's day. And I always say, if you go to church, you can do anything else you want on the Lord's day. That, that's kind of my thing with my family. Oh, you're out cutting your grass? Did you go to church? That's just my, that's just my thing, you know, whatever you go. If you went to church, if you worship the Lord, however that happens today, then go do whatever you want to on Sunday. It's really a work day. But thankfully, in our culture, it's... It's like another rest day. And we should take advantage of that. So the last thing I want to say with a couple verses is your life as a Christian on a weekly scale models for the unbeliever what all of your life should be like. So every week you work hard and you take a break. You worship and you work hard and you take a break. And one day you're going to die. Unless the Lord returns and I'm going to die. And somebody's going to say, man, he, he was a hard worker. But he's resting today.
Revelation 14, I've used this verse so many times in uh, funerals. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. What was their labor? Their life. It was their life. The writer of Hebrews says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. So every week, every week is a model for the non-Christian, we live with the dignity of work so that we can enter the blessing of rest. Does this commandment apply to us today? Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. Don't work too long, too hard for too many days in a row. Stop and rest. That's what God said. Enjoy your completed work. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the work you've given us to do but Lord, thank you also that we can work and get into your rest. That we can work and get into your rest and then rest in your work. God, we're never going to get finished. That to-do list is always going to be there. So we worship the one who did finish. Who said from the cross, it is finished. Who said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We rest in him on the finished work of Calvary. That's, that's our goal. That's our pursuit. That's where we want to end our lives. And that's my prayer for each one here today, Lord, as we consider this commandment, this challenge with our time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this final song of worship together.